Welcome everyone to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson. And today with me is Evan Slavitt, the Senior Vice President and General Counsel of AVX Corporation. As some of you may know, AVX is a leading international manufacturer of electronic components. They've got over 9,000 employees here uh, worldwide, and they're headquartered here in Fountain Inn, South Carolina, outside of Greenville. That's where we're recording today. And Evan, thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure. I know you've been at AVX for over a decade after 20 years as a trial lawyer up in Boston. Not a very impressive academic pedigree with just Yale and Harvard uh, there in the background. Um, But obviously, and as I understand it, you've got a litigation background or at least have been involved in litigation with AVX. So that's what I thought we'd talk about some. I think a lot of in-house counsel have some concern about litigation. They tend to come from that transactional background and they know it's not something they want to do and sometimes have issues managing it. So I thought it might be helpful to do a podcast with someone that's had some of that experience and kind of talk through that litigation process. That sounds good. I think I bring an interesting perspective to this because I was a trial lawyer, not just for in private practice, but I was also a trial lawyer with the government. So I've seen it from all three sides now from the government side, uh, from the private practice side, and now as a client. That's awesome. We also have Brad DeVore here with us uh, recording today. Brad is one of my partners in the Charlotte office who does our environmental work. Brad, I'm glad you could join us too. Happy to be here. And welcome to your first episode of the in-house roundhouse. Hope to, hope to get you on again in the future. So with that in mind, you mentioned the, those three different things that you can bring. Can you, Before we get into some of the practical stuff on litigation, tell us a little bit more about you know, how you view litigation management generally in terms of your, the, the philosophy that you bring and how, how litigation relates to the role of in-house counsel. Before we get started, I should point out that any opinion or viewpoint I express here is solely mine, does not belong to AVX Corporation or anybody else who works here. When you're a trial lawyer, you get very focused on the specifics of the case that's in front of you. And the result is is that you are thinking about winning the case. The goal of the in-house counsel is to try to be one step removed from the trenches so that you maintain perspective both on the process and on the ultimate goals of the company. So, for example, if you're doing a patent case and your maximum damages are $10 million and a full-range, full-attack patent case is going to cost you $15 million, then your job is not to say, how do I make sure we win this case? Your job is to redesign the criteria of success so that your trial counsel knows what they can reasonably do to make this a worthwhile case for you. And I think that one of the temptations of in-house counsel is to get co-opted and you become part of the trial team and then you lose your ability to be objective and to be the sort of voice of reason going forward. I think that's a great point. And I'm a litigator myself. And I do know, I think most litigators, and I rather agree to this, we're pretty darn competitive. I mean, I, I want to win a case. And obviously, if I had my druthers, I'd win at all costs. And, and obviously, in today's business world, that's almost never the right strategy. There may be some true bet the company, although I think that's an overused phrase. But I, I think, yeah, my view would be, sure, I'll, I'll take 40 depositions if it increases my chance of winning, because what I want to do is win. And I think you, you're right. You, you've got to have you got to have a check on that and make sure, yeah, winning may be good, but at what cost and what, what other objectives does the company have beyond winning regardless? Exactly, which is one of the reasons why I try to start out at the very beginning of a litigation by working with the outside counsel to make sure they understand what my objectives are and we have a common understanding of the plan going forward. So I will ask my counsel for a litigation plan, and 
the goal of that is not to then do this kind of clever segmentation of cost where I hold them to X dollars for this and Y dollars for that, because I'm, I'm not sure that's actually productive. The goal is so that I can see how they view the case going forward, and I can give them my input on what I think the case is about. And to give an example, we had a smallish employment case a few years ago. The amount of money at stake wasn't huge. So I went to the outside counsel and I said, listen, I want you to give me one of your senior associates. And I recognize that guy is not your best guy, because if you were, he'd be a partner. But what I want from you is I want a pretty good guy, because that's all this case will justify. And I'll give you a certain number of hours for general supervision, because I know you're your firm isn't going to feel comfortable unless there's at least some partner touching this. But I want you and I to agree ahead of time, this is the right level of effort for this case. And it took them a moment or two to sort of think through that, because I guess not a lot of my colleagues do it that way. But ultimately, it worked out very well. We got a lower rate, not because I was squeezing their rate, but because we picked the right guy to do this case. And I think that was an example of a successful case management strategy. I think that is a great tip, and I've found that in my cases too, that if you have a candid discussion of staffing, if I put together a budget that has, you know, two associates and a paralegal working with me, they can come back and say that, you know, let's not do that, or do you have somebody at a lower rate, or why do you have yourself budgeted to do the first draft of the summary judgment brief? Shouldn't that be done, you know, by an associate? And obviously, you know, I've been doing it about 30 years. So now I think I'm better about figuring out what I should be doing versus what other folks should be doing. But I think having that candid discussion up front is a great way to control costs. It isn't necessarily saying you can't spend more than 10 hours on the brief. I don't, you know, you're done when it, when you hit the 10 hour bell, which is very frustrating uh, to a drafter, but it's a more collaborative discussion about who should really be working the case. Right. And it also means that I then don't have to micromanage the case because I've agreed with my outside counsel on the contours of where we're going. And then we can manage by exception, which is then they call me up when things are going differently than we anticipate. And we can have a discussion because we've already established the baseline of what the expectations are. You use the term litigation plan or the plan for the case. And that's, I often think what my mind immediately goes to a litigation budget, but it sounds like you may have something a little more involved or is it the same thing? What, when you use that term litigation plan at the outset, what are you looking for when you tell your outside counsel, give me your plan? Okay. I want to know, for example, how are they going to approach this? Is the goal to get this case knocked out early is the goal to simply narrow the issues until we can get to a reasonable settlement. And then I want them to tell me things like, do they need focused discovery or is this going to be, you know, a broad along the waterfront kind of discovery? I don't want them to file summary judgment just because the rules allow them to do that. I want them to tell me whether I think that this is a case where summary judgment is going to be useful either to narrow the issues or potentially win the case. And by cases, by the way, I include arbitrations because I think the approach should be uh, very similar. So it's more of a discursive kind of discussion where they talk through what they think they're going to try to accomplish at each stage, how they want to approach it. There are very few cases where you say, okay, unlimited depositions. There are some, but it's very rare. The other thing they need to know from me is, what am I trying to get to? So there may be a case that's small in dollar value, but I have a very important policy point to make. So actually, we'll be in a situation where they come to me thinking they've got to be very focused. And I say, no, AVX wants to establish this point. And so I can give them more room to work because they understand that there are non-monetary considerations as well. So it's more than here, this much for this item, this much for this item. It's more of a discursive, tell me about your plan. Tell me how you hope to accomplish things. Where do you see each piece fitting in? And that's why I think it's more than just a budget. It's a, it's a plan. It's a case plan. It's a, this is how our strategic approach is going to be. That's great. Brad, let me bring you in. I'm interested from an outside counsel perspective, you know, how do you view that 
that planning stage at the beginning? And what, what are some things, if you were talking to the outside council here, that you may want to see or have mm -hmm. concern about? Well, I, I think it's a great approach because it actually gives us an opportunity to engage with someone like Evan and in a rather deep way into the case at the outset. You know, what are the potential pitfalls? Where are we vulnerable? How are we going to establish those aspects of the case that we feel are important, you know, regardless of what the ultimate outcome is going to be? What I have found, and I've had the pleasure to work with Evan on some matters, is he keeps up with what is going on. He wants to understand how the plan is unfolding and when we may be going in a different direction uh, that he needs to calculate in based on whatever the, the, the expectations of the company may be. And as he suggested, we've had at least one where I think while it was driven by the monetary interest, there were also points to be made in the market, so to speak, that I think, you know, weighed into that plan overall. So I think it's an excellent approach. And I have a handful of other clients who take a similar approach and I have found it to be helpful with them as well. That's great. You, you mentioned updating, and Evan, that was a question I had for you. Obviously, things change, and I know you, you manage a fair amount of litigation for, for GCs that may not do it very often or aren't comfortable. I think one thing they struggle with is, do I ask for updates? Do I just rely on my outside counsel to give me an update? And I hear stories about, well, it's gone six months. I hope everything's going well. You know, I don't, I don't have any idea what's going on. So tips about how to manage that communication, because we know people are busy on both sides. So you may not want to, you may not have time or a need for a weekly call, but I also think six months is probably too long to go in, at least in most cases, without any communication. So what, what's the right blend or what tips can you offer in that piece? I probably didn't pay as much attention to this when I was in private practice because I figured that the general counsel would call me if he wants to know something. But now that I'm in this role, my view is if there comes a point where I feel like I need to call outside counsel to get an update, then that means they've made it my problem and it mm. shouldn't be my problem. So I don't know that there's a rule, but I think that they should call me intermittently or send me an email. Even if the email is something very short, saying not much has happened or we're waiting for the judge, just because I can't always keep in my head what's going on with every case. And then they should call me whenever there's an important development, sensitive not only to the fact that I'm trying to manage the litigation, but I have obligations to the chief financial officer, to the outside accountants, hmm. uh, and to my board to keep them apprised of important developments. So... I expect them to tell me whenever anything important is happening, and I also expect them to intermittently give me either a no action, which won't take very long, or to tell me this is the kind of things that we've done in the last few months and this is where we're going going forward, just so that I have in my head and I can reset and say, okay, I've been updated, don't have to think about this case for a while. But if it's my job to remember to call them, then you're sort of taking time away from the other things that I have to do. That's a great no. That's a good, that's a great point. I think that makes a lot of a lot of sense, and yeah. I think that's a good reminder to our outside counsel listeners here that you you may be because you get involved in the day to day, and you sometimes forget about oh yeah, this is something they need to know about, or it's been a while since we talked. And I would feel free if I were outside counsel to do what I should have done sometimes, which is to talk to my general counsel and just ask him if I haven't worked with him or her before. Mm. How often do you want me to update? Do you need something more than quarterly updates? Do you want a status report on a monthly basis? Um, tell me what you're looking for. One of the things that I want from my outside counsel, which is different than some general counsels, is I want to see any major filing before we file it. Mm. Partly because I still can't quite get away from looking at what people are filing, but also because when I see a major filing, it gives me some information about where the case is. Uh, and so I just want to know ahead of time, we filed the summary judgment motion, and I can tell the CEO, we filed it, I looked at it, it looks good, and that makes me feel like I'm still involved enough so that the CEO knows that I'm paying attention. But yeah. some, some general right. counsels don't want that. Right. I think it's a discussion that if you haven't worked with a general counsel before, an in-house counsel before, I think it's a discussion you need to have. 
No, I think that's a good tip. Let me ask something I'm, I'm often wondered, but not sure I've had as candid discussion with GCs is if you want to see it before it gets filed, how far in advance do you want to get it? I see Brad nodding because <laughs> I'm just, you know, as a litigator, I'm always crafting and perfecting and I'm always nervous about sending anything less than a final product because I don't want the you know, general counsel to get the impression of, why is there a question mark here? Or why wasn't this argument fully fleshed out? On the other hand, I'm often crafting until you know, the day before I file, and I, I'm nervous about sending it then. And you say, no, rework sections you know, one and three, and you've got it out of order. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't have time to do it. Those are great points. So any tips on that? Because I find that struggle of, it's not really done. I don't want to mm -hmm. share it. And I also need to give it to them time. In the perfect world, you do both right? You finish it a week before and send it off and you're great. But our, we don't live in that world most, much of the time. Again, I think it's a topic of discussion. My outside counsel know that I want to see it early enough so that if I have thoughts, it's not too late. Other inside counsel may want to just see it a day before so that they can say that they've looked at it and they can be comfortable with what's going on. But for me, I've made it clear to my outside counsel, and I hope Brad agrees with me on this, that I want to see it early enough so I can have an impact, which means if it still has brackets or site needed or something like that, that's okay. Now, the other side of the coin is it does impose some discipline on my outside counsel not to wait until the last minute because they know they still have to get it to me. But as long as we have a common understanding of the stage that it's going to be at, I don't think that inside counsel are going to be upset if they still see some brackets or transcript question mark because somebody hasn't found the pinpoint site yet. Gotcha. Brad, any thoughts on that? I know we struggle with that. All of us as outside lawyers have a little bit of tension there. Well, you alluded to kind of a time period a week. And what we endeavor to do is to try to get, if it's not final, and clearly more often than not, it's not a final product, but close to a final product out to the in-house counsel a week ahead of the filing date. Now, sometimes it's five days, sometimes it's, you know, it, it may even be three, but we, that's what we seek to try to do because somebody like Evan has all sorts of obligations and pulls on his time that have nothing to do with the case. It's when he's going to have a quiet moment to sit down and actually go through, you know, a summary judgment motion and all the attendant, you know, documents to understand what's going on. That takes time, you know, and so... He may have a pocket one day that he's able to do it. Usually, I think with, within a week's period, you can probably find a pocket of time in order to do that. If we give it to him two days ahead, he might be getting ready for board meetings. He may be you know, working on a transaction or something, and he really can't you know, get into the document, which causes stress to him because he wants to be able to do it. And in turn, that stress comes back to us because you know, he's coming back to us as best he can at the last second, and we're trying to incorporate changes. So I think all around, rule of thumb, if you can get it in a, you know, roughly a week ahead of time, I have found that's what clients appreciate. Great. Now that's good guidance. That's helpful and specific advice on some of the briefing. I also wanted to take a slightly broader perspective, again, because based on the other podcasts, a lot of our listeners are solo in-house counsel. There are a lot of folks that they're the only lawyer in the place and they're wearing all the hats. And I'm interested in some other practical tips that you might want to share with those in-house people that may never have litigated a case, all of a sudden for the first time in their lives, they are now supposedly running the litigation or responsible for the litigation, just in terms of some common sense things for them to think about in terms of making that role efficient. And you've hit on probably the most important, which is you've got to be the one, the voice of the company saying what our goals are and make sure that the litigation's accomplishing what you want to accomplish, as opposed to just handing it over and let the litigator, who probably assumes win at all costs or something along those lines as the, as the role. But are there other tips that you could share with those less experienced GCs? Yeah, I guess one of them would be to recognize that Trial counsel works for you. Your job is to push them sometimes and say, explain why we're doing this. Tell me what you think the range of outcomes is going to be. Tell me if this objective is still a reasonable objective. Because part of what you need to do is you need to be the voice of reason and an objective, keep your objectivity. The worst outcomes I've seen have when, when, been either when the inside counsel simply becomes part of the trial team 
and therefore loses any of that distance, or simply assigns a case and says, go do this and tell me how it comes out. And that's too far away. It means you're not really acting in your role as the client. Um, Einstein, I believe, said something like, if you can't explain it simply, then you don't understand it. And I think that's also true of trial counsel, which is there's a lot of technical stuff. But at the end of the day, the trial counsel should be able to explain things so that even somebody who's not a trial lawyer in pro beforehand will understand the situation and will understand what decisions they need to make. Should we concede this? Should we fight hard for that? Um, how important is this particular privilege issue to you, really? Because those are all, at the end of the day, fairly straightforward kinds of questions. And inside lawyers shouldn't allow outside counsel to do a pat on the head and say, this is too complicated for you, I'll take care of it, because that's not really their job. So it doesn't matter whether you're one lawyer or a bunch of lawyers, you used to do trial work or you've never done trial work. You can still make your trial counsel explain to you what decisions they need, what the implications are, so that you can understand where the case is going. That's great. What's your view on percentage chance of, of victory? I, I know, I think, and this probably comes from the non-lawyers in the company. It's the CEO, CFO are saying, okay, well, what are our odds? You know, what are our chances of winning this? And Or if we lose this case, what damages are we expecting? I totally understand, having worked with a lot of businesses, they need to have some estimate, not just of the legal cost, but what is their exposure? This is, you know, this is a class action. Is it going to cost us a half million dollars or $5 million or $50 million? And our, is our exposure 20% or 50% or 80%? I get that. I, I also, though, at least the way I was trained as a litigator, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in what a judge is going to say and a jury is going to say. And the, the easy black and white cases don't typically go to trial. It's the ones where you get different perspectives and uncertainty. So I struggle as outside counsel with trying to be an odds maker. I, I want to provide my assessment and my, obviously, a lot of experience in litigated cases. I probably have as good a sense as anybody of the outcome, but I'm always nervous about it creating some artificial sense of certainty when I say, you know, you have a 70% chance of prevailing on this claim that I'm setting myself up for, you know, disappointment. And obviously I'm saying three out of 10 times you're going to lose, but some people take it that way. I'm, I'm curious as to, is that something you ask outside counsel for? And should other, you know, GCs ask for that? What What's fair in that dialogue? Well, I guess my first point is it depends on whether the general counsel or the company would find it useful. As it turns out, I've written several articles on this point because I'm a firm believer in probability analysis and decision trees. Not so much because I think you can do it with excess precision, but because it's a way of focusing on what's important and what's not important. So, for example, you might not be able to say it's a 72% chance of succeeding, but it is possible to say it's 2080 it's 50-50, it's 60-40, using those numbers to give a sense of even, a little better, way better. And then if you do follow the analysis out and you look at each stage and then the ultimate costs of the outcome, you can figure out which pieces of this make a big difference and which pieces don't. Because if there's something where by the time you get out to that outcome, the chances are one in a hundred, if you're wrong on the damages by a million dollars, it doesn't affect the weighted value of the case that much. Whereas on something else, where if you can move the percentage just a little bit, it makes a big difference to the outcome. And I think it's important for two reasons. One, it's important to understand your case and what the value is. And it helps in the decision settle or try the case because you can say, on average, this case is worth $5 million. The settlement offer we've received from the other side is they're willing to pay us $4 million. Well, that's less than the value of the case, but not a lot less. So it explains to your CEO or the board why you recommended settling the case. On the other hand, if you think the value of the case is $5 million and they're offering you 100000 well, 
-hmm. Again, the numbers aren't precise, but you can get a sense that their offer is an order of magnitude off what you think the value of the case is. The other reason I find it useful is when I go in to try to settle cases, I can say to the other side, here's how I'm thinking about your case. You and I value it very differently. So rather than you're just telling me how wonderful you are uh, and wonderful your lawyers are, show me which of these numbers I'm guessing wrong at. Is it on the motion to dismiss level? Is it on the liability? Do I have the damages wrong? Hmm. It sort of focuses people on the specifics of the case rather than just the big impression. So I understand the concern. You can't be over-precise and you can't let the client think of too much precision. And I can't, when I convey this to my people inside, I can't say this is the precise number. But it can be used as a good explanatory tool, and it can be used as a good test of your understanding of the case. That's a terrific, thank you. That, I think that's a really good explanation of why you need to do some of that analysis. Before I get Brad to weigh in, you mentioned a couple of articles. If our listeners want to find those, can you, would they be available online somewhere? Or? Um, there's one I wrote for the Dispute Resolution Journal, which is part of the AAA, okay. the magazine of the yeah. AAA. It should be available somewhere on there. Okay. Uh, or they can send you an email and I can send people Great. copies or whatever. Okay. And there are other articles on there on how to do decision trees and probability mm -hmm. analysis and litigation. Uh, but my focus was trying to use it to understand the value of a case for settlement purposes. No, I think that's great. And I remember, I've seen a couple law review articles, but frankly, they are at the, as many law review articles are, kind of an esoteric game theory. I was an econ major, kind of basic law and economics approach. So I understand some of the theoretical aspects, but seeing it as a more practical You've articulated practical ways to think about the key elements that I think are much more hands-on than some a law review article on game theory trying to analyze mm -hmm. probabilistic outcomes. So I think that's really helpful. You're also giving your in-house counsel the tools to explain things to the board or the senior management. So in a class action case, like the one we worked on, I worked on with Brad, it explains the probability of a class certification as a separate stage, and it explains why that's important. Because that point alone can decide whether the case is worth a million dollars or a hundred million dollars. Right. Then you can point to liability and say these are the key issues. Then you can point to the damages issue and say if we can convince the jury that this damage is not right, our exposure is much lower. And so it's, it, it gives outside counsel tools to give to the inside counsel to explain the case to people who are more businessy mm -hmm. people and not lawyery people who may not understand that class certification and liability are whole separate pieces of the case that have different implications for what you're trying to do. That's great. Brad, I know you've done some of that analysis, obviously, the case for Evan and for others. Interested in your perspective on doing it, usefulness, you know, caveats. I, I find it very useful internally to the firm. Because depending on what the what the analysis is, do we need to commit more resources to certain what I'll call pivotal issues? I mean, the ones that you suggested, Evan, really mean something, are going to move the needle depending on which way they go. Do we know enough to attach a probability to it? How comfortable are we and that we don't default, which is what all outside counsel would prefer to do, <laughs> to something along 50-50? Because it's, it's a non-commitment to it actually being weighing in your favor or contrary to your interest. So I find it helpful as an internal disciplinary tool to try to figure out what determine what do we need to focus on in terms of the discovery, in terms of our attack on the case, as opposed to the things that, yeah, they're interesting, but they really don't move the needle at the end. And so let's not put a lot of commitment of resources, et cetera, there. That helps us have for a different discussion with somebody like in Evan's position that this is where we're really going to push hard and it's it's going to cost some money, but here's the reasoning behind it so that he's getting the feedback on the plan, not just the probability, but if we put the resources on this particular issue and we achieve that result, it's a game changer. You know, it early on makes it very difficult for them to achieve their goals. Right. So I find it you know, very helpful to go through that. And there are a bunch of consulting groups out there right now that have their own version of this, <laughs> yeah. you know, and their own little tweak or nuance to it, you know, but I think it's pretty straightforward. And we've actually talked about predictive analytics mm -hmm. uh, software that's now getting into litigation, the AI 
companies that are trying to uh, get into culling all of these data points to come out with this number. I'd be curious, all three of your thoughts on how, I mean, you're obviously, you're, you, all three of you are very intelligent. You know kind of what's out there. You're not going to naysay simply because it's, you know, it takes away some of the things that, that you all are doing and know. But do you think that that's a realistic thing? I mean, is that something that we really could see someday where, where you just insert the punch card and the computer says, no, you ain't going to win? No, because really the assignment of the probabilities in litigation is simply a way of quantifying a lawyer's judgment, taking into account not just the strength or weakness of the case, but issues such as what is the tendency of the court in this district, what are the tendencies of juries, are we looked at as a good guy or bad guy, are we the Goliath or the David. I don't think, uh, unlike in discovery where predictive analytics has gotten a lot stronger, I don't think that this is going to be taken over. The goal, however, is to um, make your effort commensurate with the case. So you can do a very simple probability analysis just on an Excel spreadsheet. And it's really very simple to do it. You can do a more complicated one using some programs. And then if for a really big case, you can go out to an outside consultant who can do things like do a Monte Carlo analysis where they simulate a million events and they see just what would happen and give you a much more robust analysis. But it depends on the case. And even if I just do it on a piece of paper, saying it's a 50% chance of this and a 20% chance of this and a 30%, it helps me focus on what the real issues are. And then I can say it's worth investing another X dollars in fighting class certification because that's the stage, not the liability, not the damages, but that's the stage where it's either a million dollars or a hundred million dollars. And so it tells me what is the important leverage point. As a non-attorney, like that, mm -hmm. I find that absolutely fascinating. We now know how much our listeners maybe are familiar with all that, but I certainly, I think that's yeah. absolutely fascinating, that aspect of it. Yeah. I, I would add, I mean, I think Evan's exactly right. You're not going to have AI, at least in our lifetimes, that's going to replace Brad and Evan talking about, okay, in this case, here's the, here's the chance of class certification and the impact of that. I do think for listeners that remember the episode with Canal Insurance, they've got a large data set of claims and they are using AI to process that and say, what are the indicators that create a significantly higher insurance claim? And that's because they've got literally thousands of claims. And I do think AI can essentially substitute in for experienced adjusters to say, okay, I'm learning about these claims and I see which ones blow up. And I do think there's excitement there for, but you need a big data set for AI. I do think an area that I've recently become more interested in is some of the judicial analytics AI, where they are saying, we can, you know, you can now run a database and say in this jurisdiction or even this particular judge, what tend to be the, how often does that judge grant summary judgment? How often does that judge cite these cases? And I can see as a, as a brief writer and as an arguer, learning more about, oh, this judge has cited, you know, this particular four circuit case six times. He really knows it. He goes, that's what he always uses in his assessment of liability, or this is his favorite, you know, damages speculation case. That kind of predictive analytics may be helpful to me. It's not going to tell me necessarily a percentage in my new case, because most of what we're doing is kind of one-off, more mm -hmm. bespoke litigation. Right? I, the class actions, you're going to fight class short over time, but those issues of commonality and stuff, that really very fact-specific. No computer's going to be able to say, oh yeah, here's how you win or lose. But I think getting help on judges and those kind of predictive stuff in the future, I do think is exciting to provide even more granular information to, to us as we do that research. I think it will help inform your judgment as a trial attorney and explain why you have a robust result for me. But my goal is not to get down to that level of analysis. That's what you do. My goal is to understand what does this case mean for my company what is the investment I should make in the case? What kind of settlement posture should I take? And what do I need to tell you about my policy issues so that you know that X is more important than the dollar value of this particular outcome? 
So I may decide as a general counsel that I'm always going to fight class certification. And I have to tell you that so that you know that even if you think, ah, this is one where they're going to get a class certified, you need to understand it doesn't matter. You still have to fight this issue because I've made an independent decision that AVX is not going to, I'm just using this as an example, right. AVX is never going to stipulate to a class or just roll over for a particular class. So I think it's more of a tool for analysis than anything else. And I, I think it can be useful in a lot of circumstances. That's great. You mentioned working with outside counsel. A question that I get asked a fair amount, particularly, again, for that smaller company that may only get sued every four or five years, is how do I select outside counsel? And you've obviously had more experience and worked with different firms and different outside counsel. Can you give some practical tips? Again, a lot of our audience are folks that you know may have been a GC for three years, and this is the first big lawsuit. You know, they may have had an employment discrimination claim, but all of a sudden they've got hit with a million dollar commercial case or a class action or an antitrust or environmental, you know, all the, the kind of the things that bigger companies like AVX deal with routinely. How do they find the best counsel for them? Because they're probably going to get bombarded with, all of a sudden they'll get 10 emails or phone calls saying, hey, I noticed you were sued in federal court. We're really good. How do you, you know, what's, what's the right process for those folks to use? Well, I don't hire firms. I hire lawyers. That's been my policy from the beginning. Now, there may be some companies that have so many X kind of litigation or so many uh, Y cases a year that it makes sense for them to just pick a law firm and say, you deal with the, all these cases. But we're not that kind of company. And I think the answer is just network, network, network. You know, you always know somebody who knows somebody. And so I reach out to other general counsels if I don't know somebody in an area. For example, I'm a member of the Association of Corporate Counsel. And um, even if I don't know somebody, I know corporate counsel in that area that knows somebody. We, in fact, have a fairly active bulletin board, uh, for example, in the litigation committee, where people say, I need a commercial litigator in Tempe, Arizona. And then somebody says, I just worked with this guy, or I just worked with that guy. Another one is to use reliable networks. I use Lex Mundi and Primaris a lot, not exclusively, but it is a way, particularly when I'm outside the United States, of getting somebody who knows somebody who can sort of say, yes, I've dealt with them before, I've worked with them, they're efficient. So I, I think a lot of it is, if you don't happen to know somebody yourself, networking. I'm very reluctant, and I think it's a bad idea, to simply say, oh, well, I'll just go for this big, expensive law firm and hire them because I don't know anything about who's going to be on the case, but I know this is a big, expensive law firm. These days, there are just too many situations where there are talented lawyers who can do the case and don't work for a New York law firm or a London law firm. And it's one of the reasons that I spend time when I'm at the ACC meeting law firms and meeting lawyers because that's how you get to know people and you can reach out to them. Another thing I caution people on is to make sure when you do get a referral that you talk to the person. Can you work with them? Are they sort of on the same wavelength as you are? Do they have the time? I always ask lawyers. I just want to know candidly, do you have the time to do this case? But the other side of it is I recognize if it's a case that's only going to require 10 hours a month, then I don't have to really worry about it that much. I'll ask, but it's not a big issue. But if it's a case that's going to require from a lawyer 100 hours a month, I want to know how they want to staff it so that they're able to do the case appropriately. And then, of course, there are still the books out there like Chambers and the like that give profiles and you can get some feel for it. But I find that to be largely unsatisfactory. I still rely on people knowing people uh, and giving me some experience rather than just looking somebody up in a book and saying that, oh, they're on the first tier of Chambers, that they're the right ones to go with. Now, all that having been said, if all I'm doing is incorporating a company in uh, Sweden, Okay, fine. I'll just look up somebody who can do this or look up Lex Mundi and say who can do this because really I don't need anything special. But for something like litigation, I really want to know that, get to talk to the person and I want to interview them personally, even if it's kind of inconvenient. I mean, personally in the sense of on the phone right. or on Skype 
rather than just sending them an email saying, here's the case, go forward? Mark and I have talked about this a little bit in the past. I, so before I came to Womble, I was a consultant doing uh, PR work. And um, one place where the doing the consulting PR work, and I would imagine doing freelance consulting in general, uh, is very similar to being an attorney, a private attorney, is that there is this the, the concern of feast and famine, right, of, of, of do you have the time? Well, you don't want to say no to a job because there's always the chance that you're going to get done with all this work and then look around and you there's no work. So I would imagine attorneys have to balance that of, of saying, I don't want to say no, but at the same time, I don't, how would, when attorneys say, ah, Evan, I, I don't have the time, what recommendations would you have for outside counsel in that situation to, to make sure that they can say, I don't have time, but to also say, I really hate that I don't have time because I would really, really like to work with you. The thing that I think is builds trust is when outside counsel is candid with me. If I call up somebody I know and I say, I have this case, and they say, that's a great case, but that's not really the strength of our, our law firm, I'm going to call them another time. They won't get that case, but I now know that they're a straight shooter rather than them saying we can handle anything for anybody. Similarly, if they, I call them up and they say, listen, I'm just about to go into a two-month trial. If this is time sensitive, I just have to be honest, you won't get my personal time. That's fine. If they then say, now my partner, such and such, I'd like to introduce you. And if you like him, then he can do this or he can do this until I'm free. Well, that's fine. They've been candid with me. Uh, and that gets them a lot of points. So I think it's the long game you have to play rather than saying we have to fight for every case. But I remember when I was in private practice, uh, there were times when I was too busy and I was anxious about the fact that I had too much work. And there were times when I was not busy enough and I was anxious that I didn't have enough work. And there was one afternoon, I think it was a Thursday, where I had exactly the right amount of work uh, <laughs> and then it went away. So I understand the exigencies of outside counsel and I think most inside counsel do too. And they're willing to make allowances as long as you're honest about what your situation is. That is so. That certainly rings so true to me. And I, I, he recalls a discussion I had with one of our newer associates yeah. that just finished their first year, and it's like a roller coaster. It's like I, don't, I don't understand. You know, we're we're so busy, and then all of a sudden we have two weeks where we don't have that much going on. I said that's just part of the life of a litigator because cases are not evenly spread workload, and cases settle. You may block off all the time you think you need for trial, and then it settles a week before trial, and all of a sudden your calendar opens up, and it's just you just have to live with a little bit of that. It's just not perfect management. But I think your points about being candid with, you know, the out, the inside counsel that's trying to hire you or what's going on is a really good point. And it is it is about relationships, certainly the way I try to practice law and the clients I have are generally clients that have been clients for a long time. You can't view it as a one-shot deal. You're trying to build trust and confidence because you want to be that partner, not just someone that gets handed something and then is gone. So I, I think right. that's a good tip. Yeah. And I don't mind it if somebody calls me up particularly from a firm that I've already worked with or somebody I've met and says, I'm just checking in or here's an interesting article. I don't want to get bombarded, but if they know enough about what me and my business, so they know I'm interested in this, I'm a big boy and I can stand a little marketing. <laughs> um, I don't want to get on every mailing list that your firm has because then I'm reading a lot of stuff that isn't useful to me. Mm -hmm. But I also don't mind your occasionally reminding me that you exist either by you know, calling me or sending me a note saying, you know, we haven't talked in a while. Can I give you a, can I call you just to see how it's going? Or say, I just came across this problem. I thought you'd like to know about it. Uh, some of our other clients are grappling with it now. Things like that, I think, are well within the range of appropriate marketing that doesn't uh, bother me. In the same way that if you're going to cross sell and tell me about this other guy at the firm who's good, well, that's fine, but make sure it's because there's a good match, they know they have something to do with my business, 
but don't tell me your firm is equally perfect at everything because then I don't actually believe that what you're telling me is is really honest. So, you know, I'm on a lot of mailing lists, but part of it is they customize it. Brad will occasionally send me an interesting article about something because he knows the kinds of things that I'm specifically interested in. So when you're building up a relationship with the general counsel, always feel free to ask him, by the way, are there some particular areas of sensitivity or things that you're concerned about, just so that you can then say, I remember you said six months ago you're concerned about X. Here's some a case that just happened that's just like that. I think that that can be a very valuable tool for keeping your name in their mind. I would just echo, and both of you have said uh, many of the same things. You have to take a long view, you know, not the immediate engagement. Although, of course, you want to have that, and if that's possible, and you have the time and the, and the bandwidth to do it. But the longer view of developing a relationship, I think that that sometimes gets lost in the immediacy of every. I mean, I can remember in my practice, we went from sending letters to the film-like facsimiles to email, and now it's, you know, text messages, the the information is more and more condensed and less useful, but it's faster, okay? And so we all kind of get on the space. I think the legal profession among a select few is still driven by interpersonal relationship. Um, that level of trust, the confidence you have that somebody is, has your interest first and foremost rather than their own. And if you can achieve that, I think you're going to do just fine in the, you know, in the legal practice these days, despite the pace and despite all the, you know, uh, the things that have just sped it up in a way that instantaneous answers and, uh, you know, give me your best estimate. It doesn't need to be perfect. Just give me your best sense. You know, that sort of approach, I think, you know, it, it still really is a matter of interpersonal relationships long term. Oh, I think that's very true. Um I wanted to ask about uh, fees and legal spend. You can't go to an association of corporate counsel meeting now without seeing topics on, you know, how to manage spend. And, you know, I, I remember the ACC value challenge. Our firm was involved in that. There's been a lot of talk over years about alternative fee arrangements. And some of those can be harder in the litigation context, although I know I've done a few and people have been interested in it. What, from a, In terms of managing litigation, what have you found effective as a way to both accomplish all the objectives we've been talking about today, which I think may be the most important in terms of where you, and we already talked about investing resources and staffing. Are there other tips once you've got the right lawyer and you've the right priorities, things that, that you can suggest that, you know, that work well to keep that, that spend in check to try to keep the people in the financial side of the house happy? Well, there are several things I do. One is I send out uh, guidelines to tell you the kinds of things that I'm not interested in spending money on or things that you're going to have to get some exception from me for doing. So I don't like it when two lawyers show up at a deposition, I mean, both working for me, unless there's a specific reason why it's really important or this person is a technical expert or something like that, because that just feels like that's too many people to do one deposition. Uh, different in-house counsel obviously have different points of sensitivity. So I send out the guidelines and I tell them what I need them to do. I also point out things that I don't want to get charged for, often not huge in any particular context, but you know I don't want to get charged for uh, Lexus or Westlaw charges because these days that's, you know, every, that's just overhead. You don't have a law library, you have this. That's on you, it's not on me. So that's one level. Second thing is I am somewhat of a Neanderthal, which is I still mostly do litigation on an hourly rate because I think that it's very hard to predict what's going on. And what I need is I need my counsel not just to use that as a ticket to do whatever they want, but to do things like call me up and say, I just want you to know this month is going to be a very heavy month and here's why. And I can say, oh, okay, so I'm going to get a bill for some huge amount, but it's not going to come as a total surprise to me. Or even if it turns out that um, it was a big bill that they didn't call me up ahead of time, rather than it just going into my um, billing software, so I open it up and I say, wow, that was a lot of money. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
that they call me and say, listen, I just want you to know we're submitting a bill tomorrow that's going to be pretty large, and here's why. So I understand what's going on. The problem I have with a lot of alternative fee arrangements is that, particularly in one-off litigation, it's just very hard to craft. You know, if I were an insurance company, I were giving mm -hmm. you 200 car accident cases. We could figure out the average amount, and we could just do something on that basis, and then work from exceptions when there's a specific problem. But a lot of, I, I think, more in-house counsel than not just don't have those kinds of things. So I've always been somewhat skeptical. I use alternative fee arrangements in non-litigation areas uh, where I say, well, we need to revise this employee handbook. So what are you going to charge us for mm -hmm. doing that? Uh, that's fine. Uh, or on patent stuff where we pull hundreds of patents a year. The outside patent law firms can pretty much say it's going to be X cost per patent. But I, I'm very skeptical at the end of the day about a lot of alternative fee arrangements. One thing that is inevitably a positive is if lawyers look at the bill before they come to me and they make sure that the time entries make sense, that there's enough information about a time entry so that I'm looking at it and I understand it. So I don't want to see eight hours attention to case <laughs> because that doesn't tell me anything and it makes right. me feel like the person there is not paying attention. And I don't think a lot of senior lawyers teach the junior lawyers to understand that bills are marketing too. And that if you just give me a casual approach to spending my money, I will think less of you than if you are detailed enough so I know what you're trying to accomplish. So it's okay for a file clerk or a paralegal to say, attention to filing. But that really shouldn't be a bill that I should, uh, you know, an entry I should see from an associate. Uh, the other thing that's a huge positive, in addition to getting meaningful bills that I can actually review, is to do quality control on your own bills. And call me up and say, listen, I looked at the bill and I decided that there was $20,000 of time on there that we're going to write off before you even see it because it just wasn't that productive. That's the kind of thing that, I mean, you have to be truthful about it, but that's the kind of thing that tells me there is somebody paying attention. I'm not just the only one uh, reviewing the bills. And that builds a lot of credibility because it means that the firm is saying, well, we're trying to look at the value of this too, and that was too much time. In the same way that if you have to bring a new lawyer in, don't charge me for all the time it takes them to get up to speed on the case. That shouldn't be on me. That should be on you. And those are the kinds of things that make billing much easier, the billing interaction process much easier. And don't add people to a case without telling me who they are and why they're coming on. One of the things that always irritates me is if I see like 11 people working on one case, and I say, who are all these people? Why are they here? And there may be a good reason for it. There may be a tax attorney that had to come in to do a thing. But tell me ahead of time so that I'm not sitting there going through a bill and saying, who, who's that? Why is that person here? Those are great. And one, one tip that particularly strikes me is we certainly do, and I know Brad does, get the pre-bills and revise them and write down time that we don't see the value. It occurs to me I often don't do a very good job communicating that to the client. Maybe I've written something down to zero and no charge, but often I'm just cutting off the entries and they just never, you know, the client doesn't know because I don't think to tell them, hey, I took $10,000 off the bill. And, and you're pointing out, obviously, there's value in letting you know, hey, I'm editing it beforehand is good. And I don't, as outside counsel, I don't know that. I, I often don't think about it. I see Brad chickens. I, I just, I'm, I'm focused on making sure the bill conveys value and is fair, but I'm not sure that my clients all know that I'm doing that. Well, just remember, every month, pretty much, you're sending me a bill. So this is a regular communication. So it's an opportunity to market. Tell me why you're being efficient. Tell me what you're doing to ensure that I'm getting value for my money. Tell me what each of the people on this case is doing by time entries that are accurate and that are focused. And make sure you don't have some associate who's writing with a heavy pencil. Because once I start noticing it, I never unnotice it. Uh, and it becomes a point mm -hmm. of sensitivity. I, a lot of firms, and I admit when I was in private practice, I didn't think of it as much myself either, miss the fact that billing is as much of a marketing opportunity as all the other stuff you do. Because you know I'm paying attention to it. That's one of the things that I have to do while I'm here. So take advantage of the fact that you have my attention on the bill. Right. 
That's great. No, I think that's, I'm smiling because that's <laughs> very true. And, and I think most of us view it as a chore and something that, oh God, it's the beginning of the month and I've got to, you know, edit the stack of bills without, and I've, I've not heard it referred to as a marketing opportunity. Mm-hmm. It clearly is. So th- thank you. I mean, that's, I think that's a I super. I just wrote it down. Yeah, you wrote it down. <laughs> I think we got to share that. Yeah, we got to share, share that with, yeah, with folks because that is not a perspective that, that I've heard of. So. And I saw saw you nodding, Brad. Anything you want to add on that? Uh, Not particularly. Apart from, I, like you, would not, typically, if I had reduced a billing entry or for some work that I just didn't think was particularly productive, to call and say, okay, this is what I've done. Uh, What I have historically instead done is reduce it down to zero charge. Because I want the client to still see the work that was done. But maybe follow up on Evan's comment the marketing component of that is to make sure it's understood that somehow we determined it wasn't particularly productive. And so we took the unilateral move to go ahead and reduce it, you know, because we think that's fair uh, under the circumstances. So that's a good tip in terms of how to convey that rather than just leaving the entry there, which, you know, somebody paying really close attention would probably figure it out, but you may as well be explicit about it. That's a great idea. All right, well, one more question, then we'll wrap up with a little fun quiz. And I know everyone's got to get <laughs> back to work. I'm, I'm, I, and this is for both of you, but we've all seen, we've all practiced for a while, and we've seen changes in what the litigation is like, including technology and other stuff. I just want you to put on your crystal ball projector hat and say, you know, five, ten years from now, what, what changes do you see coming down the road? We, Brian asked us about AI, and that might be one, but I'm always interested in, in trying to predict what comes, you know, maybe coming down the road. Any thoughts on what we might see? I think you're going to see more alternative dispute resolution because I think there is still a frustration at the general counsel level or deputy general counsel level with the way that court litigation goes, particularly state court litigation. Um, I think that there is going to be a continuing focus on making sure that the client is aware of what is going on because communication is so easy that people sometimes forget to make it substantive as well. So it's very important to me that you you realize that 140 characters or 280 or whatever it is now for a (laughs) <laughs> a tweet is not helpful uh, most of the time to me. One of the downsides of the way technology has affected things, which I saw when I was in private practice and I still see now, is there's a sense that because we're always available, we also have to have answers right away. Mm-hmm. And I think that there needs to be a management of expectations that just because you can reach me anytime doesn't mean I always have the answer as quickly as you can get it to me. I also think that the courts and law firms and companies have still not fully accommodated to the terabytes of information that is now being accumulated that needs to be sorted through. Now even the simplest transaction has all these documents and emails and spreadsheets and all these things that are all stored somewhere. And I think we're still doing a bad job, and this is the courts as well, in trying to manage how we deal with that for cases that are not huge. If it's an antitrust case, okay, I can spend a million dollars on document review and document archiving. But if it's a $100,000 employment case, I may still have a ton of documents and there has to be some way of saying, no, we're, we're not going to deal with it the way we historically have done it because it just winds up driving the cost of litigation into prohibitive land so that you can never resolve anything. No, I think those are great points. I'm a member of the Sedona Conference, and we've been working on that. Last piece in the rule change, introducing proportionality is designed to get there, but I think we're a long way from the practical reality. We just don't have the, everyone talks, oh, well, that's disproportionate, but how do you prove that and just the cost to get in front of a judge to have him rule? Yeah, you can look at, you know, the, these 100,000 documents, but not the next 900,000. We're just not there. So I think in theory, the idea of making it proportional to the 
case is a good theory, but it's been very hard to implement. I, I agree. I think that is a, I worry as a litigator that e-discovery and that whole process is beginning to drive mm -hmm. a lot of the other things. And that and that's not how litigation should be. And I think you're right. ADR is an option, right? You go to arbitration, you don't have the right to do this. You don't have, you're not implementing litigation holds. You're not producing hundreds of thousands or millions of documents. And it is, it's more focused. And for a lot of cases, you just say that's that's the only way that we need a decision, but we don't need to spend millions of dollars getting there. And part of the problem, I think, also arises from the fact, and I, this may be just an old guy being cranky, federal judges have gotten further and further away from the cases that they're actually judging. Mm. It used to be that you saw the judge fairly frequently mm -hmm. on a lot of stuff. The judge had a pretty good sense of what was going on with each case and which counsel were playing well together and what cases were being efficiently managed. And the judges were much more interventionist. Over the course of time, as they have decreased the number of you know, secretaries and court personnel and increased the number of law clerks, and you seem to have a lot of federal judges who are now managing a law office, and so they want somebody else to deal with all the discovery issues. They don't mm -hmm. want to get involved. It's all meet and confer and meet and confer. Right. And the problem is, is that when you lose the judge's attention, cases have a tendency to spiral out of control. And I don't know if there's a solution or what the solution is. But one of the other things you do get in arbitration, and in full disclosure, I'm also an arbitrator, so I may be a little biased, is you get the personal attention of the arbitrator all the time. And that results in much more focus, and I think it's much more effective. And I think that the courts, particularly the federal courts, but also some state courts, have lost the old judge knows his or her caseload. Uh, we used to have things called status conferences in federal court in Massachusetts when I was still a younger attorney. And that was, you came in even though you didn't have anything particularly to do, but the judge just wanted to know what was going on with the case. And I think that's a practice that is long gone. And I, I think that you miss something by having judges just have cases only show up on their docket when they need to do something rather than saying, my job is to manage cases as opposed to just deal with problems after 12 meet and confers and letters and the whole thing, which just adds and adds to the cost of litigation in a way that I don't think is productive anymore. I would say ADR, particularly in the commercial context, is definitely the wave of the future. I'm not sure if it's going to fit into kind of the personal injury, you know, individual, even in the context of a class or mass court mm -hmm. sort of claim, whether you're going to be able to get that kind of beast into the ADR box. Um, it, it would be helpful if there was a way to do that uh, because it becomes cost prohibitive to deal with the ESI aspects of that. I mean, the typical scenario is, be it an environmental case or massive product liability case, they want you to open up everything going right. back 20 years with the design of the product mm -hmm. or what your compliance you know, methods were, and it can go on endlessly. And there are so many pitfalls that can occur in ESI, particularly at, you know, at the federal level, although you're familiar, Mark, with what our business court is doing in North Carolina, where they're essentially adopting yeah. much the same kind of uh, approach, that it becomes a danger zone for a for a defendant in particular, you know, and just dealing with the potential sanctions that may be involved, let alone the cost. So I would love to see that proportionality, some case law coming out of some of the major federal courts, like the Southern District of New York, where they are routinely handling those kind of cases, where they really start drawing some hard lines. You know, if you've got a case where the exposure is going to be less than a million dollars, you know, here, here's a guideline that says this is about what you're going to allow. Right. Okay. And if it's up this amount, this is what you're going to allow. Something a more, little more concrete. Otherwise, what we're doing is, as Evan suggested, meet and confer, fight, fight, fight. You know, nine months later, you get a decision. Maybe you get the magistrate's attention. Right. And it, and it sometimes doesn't provide a whole lot of direction, <laughs> even going forward. Very true. Great. Well, I, I, we're about out of time, but I'd like to end with a quiz. We, we do a quiz at the end to remind listeners that even though law is serious, business lawyers can laugh from time to time. So we did a little due diligence and understand that in addition to your accomplished legal career, you authored a novel 
Death of a Prosecutor. So in honor of that book, we decided to do a quiz about famous legal thrillers and their authors. Uh, I'll let you try, and then if you need help from Brad, he can be your lifeline. <laughs> so um, we got three questions. Get them all right, and you get this wonderful Starbucks gift certificate. <laughs> Miss any of them, you still get the gift certificate. So it's a, you know, high stakes, uh, high stakes a game. Uh, question number one. Oscar-winning actor Matthew McConaughey started a career trend of portraying attorneys in movies when he starred as a defense attorney, Jake Tyler Briggins, in the 1996 film adaptation of John Grisham's A Time to Kill. Of Matthew McConaughey's 45 film roles, how many times has he played an attorney? And I will give you uh, three choices so you don't have to come up with the opposite number. Is it 5, 10, or 12? I'm going to go with five, but I have literally no idea. Five is the correct answer. answer. Five is the correct answer. Can you name any of them Um, for extra credit? (laughs) I think he was in the adaptation of a Michael Conley book. Um, It was about a lawyer who ran his practice from a car. It was called The Mm -hmm. Lincoln Lawyer or something like that. The Lincoln Lawyer. That's the only only one I can think of. Well done. Well done. So that's right. So he did A Time to Kill and A Lincoln Lawyer that we talked about. The others were Amistad, uh, 13 Conversations About One Thing, and Bernie. Hmm. Tough question. Tough question. And our producer, Brian, comes up with these. These are not my brainchild. So um, I'm always stumped by most of them. Question two. What John Grisham novel was a best-selling book in 1991 and sat on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly 50 weeks. I want to say presumed innocent. Oh, maybe the firm. Um, oh, was it the firm? Actually, yeah. Okay. I, think you, I think you're right. Presumed oh, innocent I was not to preempt you there. That, that, was, no, that was Scott Turow. Right. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, Turow yes. was it, presumed innocent. It was the, the firm. Was, yeah. That's um, the one that eventually became a Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise movie. movie. Yes. Yeah. 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 Memphis, Tennessee. That's right. right. And it was his first Christian book to be made into a movie, and it was mm-hmm. very popular. I, I, I remember being struck by the firm just because there's all this inside discussion about being a partner and everything else. I was an associate, you know, at the time, and a brand new associate. I, I graduated in 1990, so he came out, and I'm reading, you know, and they're flying him down to the Caribbean and all this secret right. stuff, and I'm wondering, God, when I joined Womble Carlisle at the time, now Womble Bond Dickens, you know, are there going to be these secret things, or are going to be taping my wife and monitoring what kind of car I buy? Little, not, little do you know, yeah, Mark. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I, you know, it'd be interesting to go back and compare. And then our final quiz question is, To Kill a Mockingbird, arguably the best-known American legal thriller, the author, Harper Lee, was close friends with what well-respected writer who works included the true crime bestseller in Cold Blood? Truman Capote. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, you have gotten those with a little bit of help from Brad mm-hmm. on the second one. All correct. So I'm pleased to give you your uh, Starbucks gift card. And Brad and Evan, thank you so much for talking with us today. I think you've got a lot of good tips for our listeners and uh, I appreciate that. And I want to remind our listeners that you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to the podcast on our website at WombleBondDickinson.com or go to iTunes or the Google Play Store or SoundCloud and you can subscribe there. If you have questions or comments about this episode or ideas for future episodes, please share them with me via LinkedIn or Twitter or send me an email, which you can find there at our website. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.